Bank Talk features thought leadership interviews with executives from the community banking and credit union space. If you are the CEO or would like to be an executive one day, this is the podcast for you. Learn something new in each episode to improve the performance at your financial institution. And now, here's our host, Charlie Kelly. Hi, and welcome to Bank Talk. I'm Charlie Kelly, your host and partner at Remedy Consulting. Today, we have Katie Harrison with us from BKD, and we're talking about things you should know before your next audit. This is another one of our series of listener-requested podcasts. And, I, and I'll be honest, I couldn't find a lot of energy to have this, this podcast. <laughs> Part of it, I think, is because I don't know the audit and examination world all that well. And and part of it is, I think that whether you're a banker or credit union, you look forward to your next audit. It, you know, it's, it's sort of like looking forward to a dentist appointment, right? It's not something you enjoy, et cetera. But then after speaking to one of my counterparts, uh, he made a good point. And what he said was, he said, you know, sometimes um, the things that you need to talk about are are the things that cause you the most trouble, you know, potentially could either cause you the most uh, financial difficulty and or, you know, really uh, put you in a bad place as a financial institution. So, you know, with that said, I kind of uh, just buckled up and said, hey, let's let's get on with this thing. So for Bank Talk, uh, we'll join Katie in just a moment here. Okay, so today I have with me Katie Harrison from BKD. Katie, uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So Katie, uh, for the listeners of ours who are not familiar with uh, BKD, could you just give us a, you know, give us a, a quick background on yourself, BKD, you know, give us an understanding of where you come from. Sure. So BKD is primarily known as an accounting and audit firm. We go between number 11 to number 14 as far as size nationwide as an accounting firm. I myself act as an, an auditor and a consultant for financial services, particularly in the regulatory compliance space. Okay. So next question I have for you, Katie, is when you were a little girl and you were growing up, did you dream of being an auditor? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> I did not see that coming. Um, no. So actually, I started out my professional career in banking, finance, that sort of thing, I ended up actually going to law school and kind of took on, as I started private practice and, and all of that, my caseload was a lot of cases uh, related to finance, consumer protection that morphed into kind of being a subject matter expert in regulatory compliance and banking. And then I, BKD had approached me to kind of take on this auditor consultant role. And I've been with BKD for six years since. So it kind of, I guess, yeah, history great. kind of wrote itself that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's strange how our uh, career paths develop over time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Uh, so today, what I want to cover, and Katie, I, I think you and I talked about this in our prep session, the audit examination world. So if you're good, why, why don't you just give me a, an understanding for those of our listeners who, who kind of fall into the same group as I do. Give me an understanding of you know that audit examination, the difference between maybe an audit and exam. And if someone's coming to look for an outside firm, what are they pulling you in for? Yeah, I think a lot of personnel at financial institutions go into both 
audits and exams kind of fearful and terrified, unfortunately. I hate to see it just because they know from an examination standpoint what that could mean. You know, that could jeopardize the bank's reputation. It could jeopardize their position there at the financial institution. So I know that exams are very kind of um, the pressure's on, personnel feel overwhelmed, and like I said, just a little terrified. And unfortunately, that kind of correlates to over to our services as well. A lot of people kind of correlate from an audit standpoint that we're examiners. And I hate to see that because really we want to be, whether it's at BKD or another uh, audit and accounting firm, we really want to be a value add for the institution to be able to help financial institutions be able to identify any problem areas or enhanced risk areas prior to your regulators and examiners finding it. We want to find the problem, help you fix it before the bad guys come in, right? (laughs) And uh, actually identify it. So That's essentially why I believe any financial institution, bank, credit union, whatever it may be, would pull us in is to have us actually like fulfill some sort of value add in their compliance or internal audit plan. When they pull in somebody external, is it, you know, before the fact, before the exam, after the exam? Is it a combination of both? You know, how does that look? Is is there ever a scenario where the exam's already gone on, they found some things that pinged them and they don't know, either don't know how to fix them or tried to fix them and then brought you back in to say, what would the examiner think about this? We kind of see the whole gambit. For sure, the most traditional route that we're brought in is uh, an, an external firm is fulfilling a part of the internal audit plan. So it's recurring work. We're there every year testing whatever particular subject matter it is. We'll also see exactly that situation you just presented where the regulators are there, they've found something. And the most prudent financial institutions are calling an external firm at that exact same time saying, hey, they have found something. We are going to need your help. And if we can get brought in really from the onset, we can help be a huge support in that area to be able to kind of guide them through responses to their examiners, as well as best practices and what we're seeing industry-wide, just based on the kind of exposure that we see, we really be able to give good advice in whatever that particular subject matter is. Okay. So could you give me an example of, uh, you know, without violating any client trust, give me an example of, you know, a client that had been through it and what did they come to you for? So in regards to regulatory compliance, probably the most common subject area that we're brought into is HMDA, which is Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, which as you were kind of alluding to earlier, this particular subject isn't really that exciting, but it is probably the most common one that financial institutions get wrong and that the regulators, regulators identify it. And, you know, quite honestly, it's not a complicated regulation per se. It's just a lot of data that you have to get exactly right and then report on it. And financial institutions simply just do not have a lot of times that human capital personnel that really are experts in that area. And so they tend to have kind of a weak control system around their humda reporting. They probably don't love it either. So they do not love <laughs> it. Might it. Be it yes. To, might be hard. No, to, like I said, it is not an exciting area, but <laughs> it's kind of one of those that it's whoever pulls the last straw or the short straw is who's going to be doing Humda. But so oh, we'll true. get brought in to kind of help exactly what I said earlier. We'll be able to provide some best practices on, on what we're seeing other institutions of similar sizes doing. And 
will help uh, support the bank in any responses that they need to prepare to the examiners and just help them throughout the whole process. Okay, so let's talk about the exam process a little further. And this is really, I, I think when we prepped for this, I talked to you about this a little bit. The idea for this podcast came from one of our listeners who I think was on the security side of their world, but but was struggling with a few things. And, and what they, you know, the specific question they asked was, any trends in what examiners are looking for? You know, is there anything that a bank can be prepared for. You, Humda, I think, was one of them that you you had said, hey, people are getting pinged on this. Is there anything else that you're seeing from trends in the industry? What are the examiners coming up with today that maybe, you know, you wouldn't, if you're at a community bank or credit union, you might not be sitting there waiting for? Sure. You know, aside from Humda, I would say the other two key areas to kind of focus on from a bank's perspective would be up security as it relates to fraud and money laundering, specifically the set of regulations referred to as BSA AML, Bank Secrecy Act and and anti-money laundering. That's one area as well as anything related to fair lending as well. Both of those are just super hot topics, particularly BSA AML regarding cybersecurity and then fair lending has really became like the buzzword here in the last year or two, given diversity, equality, and inclusion movements, the Biden administration, that's kind of just where we're at now is everybody's kind of looking for fair and equal treatment. And that has trickled to the regulators as well. And they're going to look at every practice and product that you have within the bank to make sure that customers are getting fair treatment. Yeah. And I could see how you might not see some of that coming. That does make sense. Okay, so another question I have. Thank you very much for that. It's really interesting to see how the trends come along with the administration, <laughs> to me at least, uh, you know, again, from the outside. So let's talk about a compliance officer. You probably know a few of these folks. You know, what makes a compliance officer? Where do they come from? You know, give us a little understanding of what that role entails inside of a, inside of a financial institution. Sure. So really for banks, that are kind of the community bank size, you know, anywhere from like 500 million in assets to four or 5 billion in assets, that community bank size niche. We see a couple different things. We see compliance officers being grown up throughout the bank. So maybe they start out on the front line as a teller and they really enjoy it. And so they get added responsibilities and they start to look at other areas of of banking operations. They kind of just make their way around the bank to where they have a really good sense of banking operations. Those are really ideally the, the best person to put in a compliance officer role because they intimately know a bank's internal structure and, and how it kind of ticks. And so then they can go take the compliance regulations and apply them accordingly. But that's so that's one of the common things that we see is just kind of a homegrown compliance officer. Within the operations world, somebody that, that understands all the processes, that type of thing. That's right. Yeah. So it's not necessarily anybody who's who's had compliance experience before or legal experience or whatever it may be. It's just their intimate knowledge of that particular bank's operations. Okay. And then we'll see on the other side of it, a bank actually pulling in an outsider, somebody who truly does have like compliance experience. Maybe that particular bank has came under fire, had some sort of MRA at their last exam, and they really are looking for a compliance expert to kind of get the get the ship back on on course. So we'll see both ways, but honestly, I would say eighty percent of the time we're seeing that first scenario where it's it's a bank employee that's kind of grown up the ranks to the compliance officer role. 
And I've been hearing some from some of our clients, I've been hearing some kind of challenges in, in hiring compliance officers, particularly for you know, smaller financial institutions, and also of this trend of sort of, you know, rent a compliance officer. Can you can you explain that a little bit? Is that is that really something you guys are seeing? And, you know, why does that make sense? Yeah, so I, I kind of referenced this earlier in regards to one of your other questions, as far as human capital, you know, we, we really have a human capital shortage in banking overall, honestly, Charlie, you know, Um, not just in the compliance officer role. It's kind of sad to see as passionate as like we may be for banking, you know, people graduating from high school and then going into college, banking really isn't a focus like it was, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. And I know a lot of universities are, are trying to really ramp up their programs around banking so we can start to see an influx of of professionals actually want to be in banking. So that's promising. But with that being said, I think overall, you know, the banking industry is being plagued by inexperienced uh, personnel, as well as a lot of turnover. And so that can really create a problem in regards to a role like a compliance officer, where they have a huge role to play within the institution and the bank's reputation is really at risk. So with that being said, that that risk really relies on how good of a compliance officer do you have. And as we start to see some of the banking experts in the industry retire, that's where this gap of and human capital shortage is where we're, we're seeing it there after people are re- retiring. And that's probably the most common time that we'll get a call is that a bank has their compliance officer retiring and they just simply do not have somebody in their back pocket to fill that role. And so they'll call us looking for an expert to, that can kind of do the whole rent a compliance officer thing. And and that works well. We do it for multiple institutions and and hear great feedback. Really, ideally, it would be best for an institution to be able to have their own compliance officer, but we're absolutely able to fill that role as well as other consulting firms go. And I would think that that some of of that might have to do with the size of the operation. And some of it might might have to do with where you're located, right? If you're more rural, it might not be quite as easy to find the skill sets and that type of thing as well. Yeah, you're spot on. The location matters a lot if if they can um, be able to hire somebody or not, or if they just need to kind of rent the compliance officer. And they're more, if they're more in a metro area, they're going to do better as far as posting an ad and actually getting some responses to get somebody hired. Can, Can the job be done remotely? Or is it a, you know, sort of a, if you, rent somebody. <laughs> there, there, there's absolutely a site visit at some point and then, you know, perfect world, you can, you know, do a chunk of it remotely. I've actually, um, you know, right now I'm in the audit and consulting role, but in my past life, I was a, acted as a compliance officer for a bank and it would be tough to have that role be 100% remote. I would say, you know, probably 80% of your duties could be done remotely. 20% really, you kind of need to be there on site for a lot of I don't know, kind of day-to-day interaction and support to the other business units within the institution. So like I said, kind of an 80-20 mix. Yes, the majority of the work could be done remotely, but you also need somebody who could could ideally be on site. For those institutions that we act as their compliance officer, we try to actually visit the bank and be on site. Typically, at least a week per quarter is kind of the rule. Oh, okay. Actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, okay, so I think I really only have a couple of questions left here. Now, you can answer this one of two ways, right? What do you think a compliance officer should know or what they should focus on? Or, you know, maybe a different way to say that is, 
What are you seeing banks getting written up for you know, when it comes to exams? You know, is there a trend there outside of, you know, the, maybe the question you had answered before? Yes. So I'm going to kind of go back to the kind of trends and hot topics that we're seeing. Those same three subject areas are, are really what we're seeing banks getting writ- written up for. That's HMDA, Fair Lending, and then BSA AML. As far as BSA AML goes, I would say the most common thing we're seeing banks getting written up for there is just insufficient resources. Maybe their department isn't large enough to kind of handle the potential suspicious activity that that the bank is having. And that's kind of a key factor of having a strong BSA AML program is having somebody to be able to look at potentially suspicious activity and make a determination. Is this actually suspicious? What do we need to do with this particular account to kind of protect the bank? Kind of check an audit logs or whatever, whatever comes out of the Yes. And so, you know, we can pretty easily, and as well as examiners, pretty easily identify when we have a resource issue within a BSA AML department, because all of a sudden those, those logs that you just mentioned aren't getting checked timely enough. Maybe it's, you know, a week or more out from the actual activity that it's starting to get looked at. So you'll kind of see a trend when you have a problem with employee resources that all of a sudden things are just not getting looked at in a timely manner. So regulators and your examiners will pick up on that pretty easily. And that will be a write-up you'll see is just simply that the BSA AML department needs to hire additional people. I mean, we don't we don't see a lot of fines associated with that. That's not like a you know sexy per se topic. It's just one that's that's pretty common. Sure, the regulars want to keep an eye on it because it's just because of all the implications there. You know, whether it be you know, just the uh, social implications, if nothing else. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And then the um, as I was saying earlier, Humda is definitely not an exciting one, but it, it's a most more common one just simply because it's. There's a lot of data to wrap your hands around. So if you don't have good systems in place and good good controls, it's it's easy to get out of line and and have uh, an MRA or something of that sort. You mentioned, I think, when we were talking earlier, uh, third party management, you know, vendor management, that type of thing. Is that that's also a hot one, or is that maybe not quite as much? Yeah, no, that's a great point. So third party management and vendor management from like an IT officer standpoint is really hot right now because of the whole fintech movement, you know, in the last four or five years here where we've all of a sudden had this explosion of companies that are rooted in financial technology. They're not banks, right? They're just like these random startup companies that they have some sort of technology to offer that can help financial services. Well, those fintech companies quickly realized that if they partnered with financial institutions, banks or credit unions, that all of a sudden they've expanded their customer base exponentially. So all of a sudden they can touch all of these customers with their their technology and product, whatever it is. And then on the flip side of that, you have banks that are sitting here looking out in the marketplace and realize that they're losing their foothold in the marketplace to these fintech companies. So, hey, let's partner with these fintech companies so that that way we don't lose so much ground. So it's been really interesting, like I said, in the last four or five years to see the relationships grow between these non-banks and banks so that they can help each other compete in the marketplace, but at the same time, bring really cool new technology to consumers throughout the industry. When it's a fintech or maybe a newer technology company, what are the regulators looking for there? Is it is it you know the fact that 
somebody can't break in the back door. What are you seeing in trends for the things that they're asking if a fintech happens to be one of your vendors or a newer startup happens to be one of your vendors? Yeah, so that's the interesting thing and really kind of the negative for a fintech company is that all of a sudden, if you're a non-bank, if you've partnered with a bank, you are going to be subjected to the same basically regulatory scrutiny that a bank has. So pretty much any regulation that applies to a financial institution is going to apply to whatever third party that they've brought on board. So the main things that we're seeing really kind of thrown about is cybersecurity obviously is super hot right now, particularly for these startup companies. The regulators want to make sure that they have all the the stops and security in place so that people's private financial information doesn't get out there. But so cyber cybersecurity for sure. And then just overall, the regulators call call it third-party management or and or vendor management, but it runs the gambit as far as cybersecurity, the actual um, technology management piece of it, also the regulatory compliance as far as the consumer protection regulations go, those need to apply as, a, as applicable, whatever that product and service it is. So, I mean, that's, that's the key theme that we're seeing is even if you're a non-bank, all of a sudden you're a bank in the regulator's eyes. You've got to follow those same exact regulations. All right, last question. So, any horror stories? <laughs> right? Is there, you got any? You got any stories of somebody who really sort of screwed up the audit? And then, you know, what's the damage control when it goes really wrong? Yeah, I mean, of course, we we have a lot, and some of them exciting, some of them not. One that really sticks out in my mind is not related to really any of the three regulations we've been talking about. It's related to. RESPA, which is the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act, as well as a little bit of SAFE Act, Truth and Lending. But we had an institution that had a pretty good mortgage origination department. They realized after about, I think it was maybe 16 months after this loan officer had been originating loans, that he had gone completely rogue, (laughs) not following company policy whatsoever, not following consumer protection regulations. I mean, it was violation after violation after a violation. Their quality control department actually caught it. The negative, like I said, was like it's 16 months into this guy doing this from day one. So at the point that quality control realized this, they brought us in to help us kind of put out the fire as best as we could. They actually did what's called self-identification. So it's because they identified it before a regulator did, you call it self-identification, you let the regulator know. Supposedly, you will keep yourself from, you know, I don't know, as steep of penalties as it, you know, compared to if they had found it versus you self-identifying. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yep. So in this particular case, that's kind of kind of what happened there. And it's actually still ongoing. So I don't know if they'll actually end up having to pay what's called civil money penalties because of it, but at a minimum, find, they probably have to go back and get the documentation straight, I would imagine. Go back and recontact the borrower or something along those lines to get them straight, I would imagine, right? There was a lot of retroactive, like checking everything that had occurred in those last 16 months, looking at all communications to borrowers. It included this particular employee's social media accounts as well. I mean, it really crossed so many different areas. But, you know, the good thing that helped the bank in this situation is it was one rogue employee. So we we looked at other employees as well and nobody else was doing this. It was completely just this this guy who I guess thought was, you know, invincible. 
Um, so that is a horror story. I would say like any given bank probably shouldn't necessarily be worried about that exact situation, but that's exactly why controls and policy and procedures are so important is so that you can actually line out what the rules are and then be able to quickly identify any outliers. But so that would be one story. Okay. Well, thank you. I mean, this has been, this has been uh, very eye opening. So I, I certainly appreciate your time, Katie. Uh, anything else we missed? Anything else we should be talking about before we lock her down? No, I would just say kind of what I had said to the beginning for any of your listeners that are feel fearful of auditors or exams for that matter. Don't, you know, I would just encourage you not to be. I would say both examiners and auditors are just people like I mean, you and I, we typically are very technical in nature, but overall, we just want to really come from a good place and help a bank get in compliance as much as they could. So that would be kind of like my takeaway, I guess, to your listeners is to not be fearful of of exams or audits. You know, your goal is really as a CYA for them, you know, for the organization, not the other way around, right? I mean, you're trying to proactively keep them from getting stung and, you know, what the regulations are is in, you know, nobody's got control over that. That's right. right. Your goal is really to just try to make sure that if they, you know, if something's going out there from a trend in the industry or there's things that the auditors are going to be, the examiners are going to be looking for, might as well get to them now, right? Might as well get to them before that exam shows up. That's right. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate your time, Katie. And uh, uh, thank you for joining us on uh, Bank Talk. Yes. Thank you, Charlie. So I'd like to say thank you to Katie for joining us today on Bank Talk. I'm Charlie Kelly, your host. Have a good day and keep on learning. Thank you for listening to the Bank Talk podcast brought to you by Remedy Consulting. To learn more about compliance and audit, please contact BKD at BKD.com. If you are interested in becoming our next presenter on the Bank Talk Podcast, reach out on our website, banktalkpodcast.com, and we will see you in the next episode.